who was shipwrecked. He was marooned alone on a desert island. He was a fairly resourceful man and survived reasonably well, but he was still delighted when a ship hove into view, they put out a boat, and they came to rescue him. And as they came on land, they were amazed to see two buildings, each with a cross on. And they said to the Welshman, we thought you were alone. I am, he said. Then why have you got two churches? Ah, he said, that's the one I go to, and that's the one I don't. It's told of a Welshman, but it could be English, Irish, Scottish, any nationality in the world. One of the saddest, saddest fact about the Christian church is its tendency to splinter and to split. Speaking purely from my own experience, I have been in churches where this has happened, and almost always it's been egos, personality clashes, power plays. I have seen people behave in church in ways that they would be utterly ashamed of behaving anywhere else. The Christian church, sadly, has this tendency to split and to splinter. But it's not always personalities. It's not always egos. It's not always power trips. There are occasions, I suspect they're few in number, but there are occasions when the very truth of the gospel is at stake. And then it becomes necessary to stand up for the truth, even if that means a split. You may remember Martin Luther, the great German reformer, who rediscovered the glory of the gospel, that we are saved by faith through grace. He was called to the Diet of Worms, 1521, before the Emperor Charles V. And all his writings were piled up on a table, and the Emperor thundered and banged the table, and insisted that Martin Luther recant and repent of all his writings. He took a moment to think, and then he said this, unless I am convinced by the plain sense of Scripture, not by popes or by general councils, for they have erred, unless I am convinced by the plain sense of Scripture, here I stand. I can do no other. There are times within the Christian church where you come to a here I stand moment, when the very truth of the gospel is at stake. I don't know what you made of that reading from the first letter of John. It's a strange reading in many ways. But just hold in your mind that John is writing to a church or churches that are faced with people 
who are threatening to cut away the very foundation of the Christian faith. And if they are allowed to have their head, Christianity would wither on the vine. For what were they saying? They were saying that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh. Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh. We know them as deceitists. Don't worry about that term. All it means is people who said God seemed to take on human flesh. But in reality, he did not. Jesus was simply God play-acting. He didn't really become a true human being. He didn't really die on the cross. He was not really raised from the dead. Why did they say this? Because many of the Greeks at that time were quite sure that the body was an encumbrance to us. What really matters is our spirit, our mind. The body is just something that gets the spirit and the mind from one place to another. But the part that will live on, if anything lives on, is the spirit and the mind. The body will rot in the ground. And so to them, the idea that God, the supreme goodness, the summit of perfection could take upon himself human flesh was utterly ridiculous. They could not conceive of this. It just seemed to them nonsense. And so they said, Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh. And John realized that if this were allowed to go unchecked, then all the truth proclaimed by Jesus would go out of the window. The great Augustine, one of the greatest theologians of the church, before he became a Christian, said this, I had often read in the philosophers, in the beginning was the word. They admitted there was an organizing principle behind everything that existed. But I never read in the philosophers. And the word became flesh. That's the truth of the Christian faith. That God took upon himself our flesh and blood. He was born to a real woman and lived a real life. And that meant that when he died on the cross to deal with all that separated us from God, when he died upon the cross, he did so truly. He did not just seem to die. Do you know that even today, in the Quran, Muslims believe that Jesus did not die on the cross. He only seemed to die. And if you go behind that, you'll find that they believed that maybe Judas Iscariot or Simon of Cyrene 
took his place. But Jesus only seemed to die. And of course John is saying, we can only be redeemed, we can only be brought back into a right relationship with God if Jesus lived a true human life. If he died truly on the cross for our sins, and if he was raised in glory in bodily form. Have you noticed that often in one of the creeds we use, the Apostles' Creed, we talk about the resurrection of the body. There's a reason that's in the creed, and the reason is precisely to say Jesus lived a true human life. He died a real death and he was raised in bodily form. And because of that, we have hope. Jesus shares our life. Jesus died for our sins. And because he rose from the dead in bodily form, he gives hope that we too will do the same. So there are times when it's necessary to contend for the truth of the gospel. But John did it in a very special way. Have you heard of the story of the vicar? The vicar goes to a new church and he stands there and he preaches the most stunning sermon. People are just riveted They listen to every word he's saying. And at the end of the service, they rush to the church wardens and they pat them on their back and they say, fantastic, where did you find this man from? He is a brilliant preacher. And then the next Sunday, they come into church and they are on the edge of their seats. They are waiting for the pearls of wisdom to drop from his lips. But to their amazement, he preaches word for word exactly the same sermon from the week before. Well, they stroke their chins and they think, well, possibly he's just had a memory loss. You know, it's an accident. They forgive him. But on the third Sunday, when they come expecting wisdom again and get precisely word for word the same sermon, well, they're back to the same church wardens insisting that the church wardens have a word with him and gently point out to him that something different would be nice. The church wardens go to the new vicar and they point out the error of his ways. Ah, he says, I know it's the same sermon. When I see it being acted on, I'll preach something different. would be interesting in St. Giles, wouldn't it? That's what John does. John, if you read his gospel, but particularly if you read his letters, little children love one another. And tradition has it that he lived in Ephesus, and tradition has it that his disciples said to him, please tell us something new. Little children, he said to them, love one another. That was his teaching because he knew that even if you contend from 
for the gospel. You do not demonize those with whom you disagree. However much in error you may think them to be, you do not demonize them. Why? Because they share flesh and blood with you. God created them just as he created you. And so whether you're big or tall and fat or thin, it matters not a bit. God loves you and he wants you to love others. And you see, these people who denied that Jesus came in the flesh because they wanted nothing to do with the body, where there were two logical extremes that you can carry their teaching. If you believe the body doesn't matter, either you can be an ascetic, you can fast, and you can punish the body, and you can bring it under control of the spirit. Or you can say the body matters not at all. It doesn't matter what I do with the body. And so you become a libertine. Sexual license. You don't care what you do with the body. It will rot in the ground. You do not need the brains of an archbishop to know which of those two alternatives was the more popular. And it seems that in John's community, because people were denying the value of the body, they were behaving in a sexually immoral and libertine way. And John was needing to say, your beliefs have consequences for your behavior. Do you remember if you read it, he says, how can you say you love God who you haven't seen when you don't love your brother or sister who you have seen? And that is what John is saying. It matters what you believe because our behavior flows from our beliefs. So where we got to? Sometimes, sometimes, the truth of the gospel demands that you stand up for it. But if you think you are in that situation, take some time to see how much of you personally is invested in this. How much you are determined that it will be my way or the highway. How many times are you determined that the church will be shaped in your image and no one else's? And secondly, because the body matters, this is how we love one another. The body was created good by a living God to be used to respond to his love and to love other people. Paul says, the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. How would we use our bodies, how would we treat our bodies, if we were aware that they were the good creation of God, 
the temples of the Holy Spirit. So this morning, let's hear the talk again. Little children love one another. And I need to tell you, I'm preaching next week as well. And if it sounds similar, there will be a reason. Let's just be quiet and pray.